this is why I would focus on the infrastructure group, because you get people working together on something, they can work together on multiple somethings. You get people working together around Electoral Count Act reform, then maybe you have less of a bruising Supreme Court fight. Maybe you get some momentum around a scaled back version of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. There, like, there are so many things that could happen here. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. As most of you know, we have a new book coming out in May. Now what? How to move forward when we're divided about basically everything. In anticipation of our book, we're going to start asking that question here on Pantsuit Politics. In today's episode, we're talking about our elections. The aftershock of January 6th is still reverberating, but voting rights legislation is dead in the water. Now what? Whole regions of our country can feel like enemy territory and the midterms are rapidly approaching. Now what? We're going to start talking about the state of election reform in Congress, and then we're going to share a conversation with Kelly Kraut, a mom of seven who is running for lieutenant governor of Arkansas, and see what we can learn about Arkansas and greater Appalachia and try to answer that question. Now what? And at the end of the show, I'm going to share about my mother-son book club. So many of y'all have asked me about that, and I'm excited to talk about it. Before we get started, I'm just here again to ask you to leave a review for our first book on Amazon because it confusingly helps our second book to have lots of reviews on our first book. (laughs) So if you have done that, we really, really appreciate it. If you haven't and you've read the first book and can honestly leave a one-sentence review for us on Amazon, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. We're only about 200 away from our goal of 1,000, so anything you can do there means the world to us. We don't know exactly why, but we appreciate it so much. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Okay, Beth, you want the good news or the bad news first? 
I mean, I always take the good news first. Always. Okay. Have you heard that a bipartisan group, it's almost like they heard you the other day, a bipartisan group led by Senator Susan Collins are working on updating the Electoral Count Act of 1887. I love a bipartisan working group. I told you I would get up every morning and go to bed every night if I worked in the administration thinking, how do I keep the infrastructure band together, get them it's some the same pizza, band. get them some uh-huh. wine, bring them whatever they want. Let's get some things done. It's our all-star team from infrastructure, Romney, Murkowski, Caputo, Portman, Tillis, Young, and Sass on the Republican side, as well as Manchin, Shaheen, Cinema, Warner, Coons, Murphy, and Cardin on the Democratic side. If Senator Susan Collins gets this done, I will take back almost everything I mean I've ever said about her. Okay, so let's pause just a second. In case you didn't know, the Electoral Count Act is a garbage law. It's a garbage law. It came about after the disputed election of 1876, which was also a garbage moment in American history. It was the election of Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, who deaf lost the popular vote to Democratic Samuel Tilden. Now, I say he lost the popular vote. That is in the context of widespread reports of electoral fraud and the disenfranchisement of black Republicans across the South. But there were 20 electoral votes from four states with conflicting reports. And so basically they got in a smoke filled room and said, we'll give the Republicans the election if you pull federal troops out of the South, which effectively ended Reconstruction. And again, garbage moment. So. Of course, this garbage moment in American history produced this truly terrible law. It is so bad. I kind of wanted to read it out loud. It's too confusing and too bad to even read out loud. But just know that the sentence, seemingly important sentence that begins, if more than one return or paper purporting to be a return from a state shall have been received by the president of the Senate, goes on for 273 words, that single sentence, and resolves absolutely nothing, which is why attorneys working with the Trump campaign were fully prepared to exploit it on January 6th. It is a really bad law. It's so bad. And I understand how hard circumstances get us to bad law sometimes. (sighs) What's nice about a really bad law, though, is that you can look Mm -hmm. like a hero with kind of Mm -hmm. an easy fix. Because if Mm -hmm. this group even just comes out with one sentence like the vice president may not overturn the election results, they have done something good and helpful for American democracy. So true. So we did have some experts on democracy come together and they issued a report and they had specific suggestions. One that comes up pretty often is let's raise the threshold on objections. Right now, you just need one member from each chamber. Well, considering we have some real, real wild cards out there, particularly in the House. Let's raise that. Let's not just depend on one wild card. Let's make it where it's like, oh, I don't know, two thirds of each chamber to raise an objection. Something real, real lofty. Well, just to be clear what we're talking about, if a state has certified election results, what should it take for Congress to seriously consider rejecting that state's certification. That's what we're talking about. If you Not need, Madison Cawthorn, I can tell you that much. If you need 60 votes to pass anything in the Senate, mm-hmm. overturning the certification of a state, to me, ought to take 60 votes, too. Yeah, 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 not Josh Hawley with his fist in the air. That's not good enough. Okay. And I mean just to, just to object, not to actually do something with it, but like just yeah, to raise to the question of doing something mm-hmm. that serious ought to take 60 votes. So they also said we need to clarify how these disputes, once these objections have been raised, how they're resolved, because that's really not covered in this like paragraph, terrible, terrible paragraph of this law. That's all it is. And we put the whole paragraph in the show notes if you want to subject yourself to it, which you probably should. Clarify the safe harbor provision so that it's very, very clear that if a state resolves its own dispute over electors by that deadline, Congress must count them. We don't want this stretching out. I mean, that's kind of what they were trying to get at with this law. Let's not leave this stretching out until forever. But again, they did such a bad job, such a bad job. And then again, let's just at the very least clarify the vice president's role so that it does not include resolving congressional disputes over electors in an election that, oh, I don't know, they could actually be a candidate in. I'm excited about this. I know that this doesn't register in the top 50 priorities for your average midterm elections voter. Oh, it should, though. But it is extremely important. And I think that this is really effective. I know this is not what voting rights advocates 
really want and think is most important. And still, I think it is incredibly important. I think it's directly responsive to what happened on January 6th. And I think getting this done with 60 votes in the Senate is a very healthy thing for our country immediately and in the long term. So, well, let's talk about the voting rights issue because they're directly related. I mean, part of the reason this is happening now is that this bipartisan group, particularly the Republicans in this bipartisan group, are hoping that, and now we get to the bad news portion of this program, the brutal failure of the Freedom to Vote Act in the Senate will motivate a little movement on this particular reform. Because previously, the Democratic leadership stance, including the White House's stance, was like, don't submit this to us and act like this is voting rights reform. Like, don't act like this is too little. This is a trick. This is a trap. You're going to do this and then say, see, we did it. But that was before, you know, Leader Schumer's efforts to institute a talking filibuster in order to force a majority to vote on the Freedom to Vote Act failed. And just in case you've forgotten, I mean, the Freedom to Vote Act is pretty prolific. It's mandates same-day voting, online voter registration, early voting, loosening voter ID. Act. There's a lot in there, okay? And so, but it's not going anywhere right now. It's not I mean it's, you know, dead forever, but for right now, it's not going anywhere. And so I think that they're hoping, like, the end of the momentum there will translate into some momentum around the Electoral Count Act. And how do you feel about that, Sarah? I keep thinking about this moment where I was listening to Biden's first year and particularly Biden's relationship to Joe Manchin. And they were talking about, look, Joe Manchin's like initial offer on the Build Back Better is like not even on the table anymore. Now he's like, forget it. And the per- and the reporter was talking about that happened with Clinton's health care reform, right, that Bob Dole submitted a compromise and they were like, no, it's not good enough. And then eventually Bob Dole was like, it's off the table. I'm not even doing that anymore. And I don't know why we keep making the same mistake. Like, your first offer is your best offer. It's like real estate in Congress. And this idea that, like, we'll hold out for something better in a future you cannot control that is particularly dangerous in a political setting. And so I don't want to hear about traps. Get it done. If this is the best we can do, I'm happy with it. And I know there are a lot of voting rights people that would not be. And I get that. And I, to me, though, they're just, they're so different. They're so different. I don't even know why we're really talking about them in the same way, except for I just think it's just sort of the the political reality of the moment. But I really do think they do very different things. And I think that if you, we can get the Electoral Count Act through, that could build momentum for voting rights reform. And so let's do that, because what we don't want is to wait and him and haw and let Trump get his teeth in it and have time to build real opposition like he did with the infrastructure bill. Like we don't we don't want to wait until he's really got people sending death threats to Republicans for voting for anything on a bipartisan manner. It's not in his interest. He doesn't want this this Electoral Count Act to go through, which should be all the indication we need that it should. I think you're right that this could build some momentum. This is why I would focus on the infrastructure group, because you get people working together on something, they can work together on multiple somethings. You get people working together around Electoral Count Act reform, then maybe you have less of a bruising Supreme Court fight. Maybe you get some momentum around a scaled back version of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many things that could happen here. I was thinking about our conversation about activism. And I worry that some people heard that conversation and heard activism is bad or activism has no place or activism is not helpful, which is definitely not where we are on it. For me, there is a moment when activism has to make a turn from here are our demands to here are the things you need to keep in mind as you execute. So I was thinking about the Freedom to Vote Act and voter ID and that conversation in general. Freedom to vote would not eliminate voter ID requirements, but it would loosen them up. And that is politically a loser for most Mm -hmm. people. It just is. Now, we can debate the merits of that, but I don't want to do that today. I just want to accept the reality that that's a loser. So what's the next step? If I were a member of the Kentucky State Legislature, I would be thinking about what would a really cool universal ID program look like in Kentucky? 
How could we make it where you can go into any school, any bank, any community center, any post office and get an ID and get it for free, get it replaced for free, get your voter registration updated? That's where activism can come in and where activists can come in and say, now, hey, as you're doing that, consider the tribal nations in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And how do you respectfully navigate? You know what I mean? Like there's got to be a pivot from demand oriented to action oriented, execution oriented. And that shift has not happened in the national voting rights conversation in a way that's made it at least to the layer of people who pay attention as much as you and I do. And that frustrates me. It cannot be you support these particular pieces of legislation or you're a monster. It has to be This is the problem. Let's define what is the scope of a federal voting right. Are we talking about what it takes to register or are we talking about how long you have to wait in a line, whether you have to physically go somewhere? I mean, there are some really hard questions around what fits within a voting right. And when we're talking about just what encourages people to vote and is it a goal to actually encourage people to vote the history of a place matters when people attack us about being frustrated with georgia's laws because new york has worse laws than georgia when it comes to voting right well you're ignoring a whole lot of history and a lot of context in that conversation and that matters and that's one argument against some of the federal voting legislation that's been proposed that it tries to do a one size fits all for a big diverse country The Supreme Court rejected a more targeted approach under the Voting Rights Act. So where does that leave us now? That's a lot of words for me to just say. We need a lot of creativity around where that leads us now. And being in the category of you either put you either pass this or you're the worst and our democracy's over. That's just not working. I'm ready to move on. Yeah, I think the important thing I'd like to emphasize about activists is you can be an activist and you can be right about the issue and wrong about the strategy. Suffragists were. Lots of people were like that. That's not there's a long history of that. Being right on the issue doesn't mean you're right on the strategy. And I know it feels a little bit easier to think the only thing standing in our way are two senators or the only thing standing in our way in our filibuster. But that is an oversimplification of the reality. And it's not the only thing standing in our way. And I know it feels discouraging and hard to think we have to tackle this state by state. But guess what? This isn't a new conversation among activists either. And so I just think that that with voting rights, when you, the, you know, the now what for me is don't, you cannot as an activist put all your eggs in one basket. And I'm, 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 I'm speaking about activists as a monolith, and they're not. Lots of activists know that and have launched very successful strategies understanding that reality. You know, there's a real simple narrative even about women's right to vote, that it was, you know, Alice Paul coming along as played by Hillary Swank and pushing a federal solution. And that's what really got women the right to vote. But that's not true either, because that strategy was successful because there were st- pressure coming from states who had actually given women the right to vote and had politicians accountable to them. It was both. And so that's always going to be true. And I think that that it just becomes activism and relationship, sort of like electoral versus governing, all that, especially when there is a moral issue. And for voting rights, there is a moral and ethical issue at play here, obviously, that it becomes the moral weight can complicate the conversations around strategy. Yeah, you know, I think you hit on something really important there because it's almost not even activism that I'm talking about. It's it's that political hobbyism. It's what is driving the conversation among people who are interested in politics. And I'm sorry that that matters as much as it does right now, but for a variety of reasons, social media, coronavirus, like there there are a lot of reasons that what dri- what drives the political hobbyist conversation becomes what people believe the possibilities are and what people believe that voters care about. And I think that misses so much. But what it's missing the most for me right now is that pivot to, oh, we actually do want to get things done. And we actually are willing to make some compromises in the process of getting things done, because that is what humans have always had to do throughout history. This idea that Democrats have 51 votes in the Senate and a narrow majority in the House, and so we've got to seize the moment and muscle everything through, that isn't how any kind of leadership works. In the corporate world, people who have lots and lots of power 
still understand that there is a fragility around power and you can't just cram everything down. So much good stuff can get done if they use this Electoral Count Act, I think, as the jumping off point for it. Yeah, I mean, there are Twitter activists and there are activists on Twitter, but that doesn't mean all activism takes place on Twitter, right? I think that that's just where we get stuck a little bit. So the now what is to remind ourselves, like, there's, it's always more complicated and there is work for you to do close to where you live and close to your community if this is something that you deeply care about and it's something we should all care about. And as we continue to keep our eye on 2024, we've decided to launch a new series where we talk to candidates running this year to help us understand the different regions in our country and what they care about. We're using Colin Woodard's framework, and you can listen to our interview with him in our January 19th episode linked in the show notes to get a better handle on that if you haven't listened yet. And first up, we're going to be talking about Greater Appalachia as represented by Arkansas. And to help us understand this area better is candidate for Lieutenant Governor Kelly Kraut. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Kelly, we're so excited that you're here with us today. And I wondered if you might start by just orienting us to present moment Arkansas. 
What's going on there? How has COVID impacted Arkansas? What do you want people to know about your state right now? Hey, thank you so much for having me. The honor is all mine. I'm very excited to be here. So Arkansas, Arkansas is really something right now. We're we're seeing a lot of different things happen. It is becoming super, super extreme. Uh, we make the national news a lot for kind of wild legislation that makes its way through. We see a lot of elections just go unopposed. People just aren't running or people are winning their elections in primaries, which is contributing to some of the extremism. We see people just overwhelmed with the state of things. And so they don't really want to get involved because it's too messy. I talk a lot about how if we want good, kind politicians to be in office, we have got to do something about this environment we've created for politicians because it's so nasty and kind, decent people don't want anything to do with that. So Arkansas is no different than anywhere else there. It can be really ugly and you're putting yourself in kind of a vulnerable position to run for office. So that's sort of the small gist there. And so how did you decide to put yourself in such a vulnerable position? That's a super question. I guess I'm a bit of a, a glutton for punishment. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a go big or go home, all in, all out kind of person. I actually used to be pretty politically apathetic because I just felt like it's so much information to need to know, to be able to be really involved and really engaged. And it overwhelmed me. So I just kind of, you know, la, 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 I'm going to pretend this isn't happening. And then a few years ago, I started paying a lot more attention and realizing that was kind of a privileged position to take, to step back and just not be involved. So I started paying a lot more attention. And when I noticed people stepping up to run for office in my area, I didn't feel like anybody matched the values that I had. And so I looked around and I was like, is anybody going to do this? And they were not. And so I just stepped up and decided I'll learn as I go. So just wanted to be able to serve my community. What made you choose Lieutenant Governor? That's a great question. It's kind of a quirky position here in Arkansas. It, the governor, the lieutenant governor would serve as governor if the governor resigned or passed away or could no longer perform the duties of governor. And then they preside over the Senate with a tie-breaking vote. We don't see a lot of ties in Arkansas, mm-hmm. you know, so super majority, but it's an important leadership position and would have a really unique microphone to be able to, you know, advocate for issues that are important to Arkansans. I ran for the House of Representatives in Arkansas in the previous election cycle, was unsuccessful, but loved campaigning, loved connecting with voters, and built a really unique social media platform where I was able to have a lot of really important, good, graceful conversations. And I thought, how can I serve my party the best? How can I serve Arkansans the best? And was asked about lieutenant governor and decided that actually sounds like a good fit. In my experience, you know, I also loved campaigning. I love knocking on doors and meeting just people on the ground. And that's where you really can start to bridge that disconnect between the extreme nature of the political reality in a place like Arkansas and the lived reality of the citizens themselves, especially the apathetic ones who don't tap into the process. So what are you seeing there? Like, what's the industry like in Arkansas? What are the real complaints You know, I I think politics is about everything. And also it can be its own sort of silo that if you can just scratch below that and get an answer to what's really going on in people's lives. So what's really affecting the the lives of the people of Arkansas as far as like what industries are increasing or declining or what sort of resource problems are you having? What are you seeing when you talk to people on social media or in person? That's a great question. Well, I'll tell you, it's not the things that the legislature is concerning themselves Mm -hmm. with. I am a social work student. I'm finishing up my master's in social work. So I'm getting kind of daily experience dealing with some of the most vulnerable people in our population. And I served as a foster parent for many years in the area. And so I got a first, you know, a front row seat to how a lot of families are struggling, swimming upstream, trying to work through these really clunky systems that are very difficult to navigate, even with a good advocate helping you. We've got to simplify some of these systems so that people can do well. We are 41st in education. We're 49th in healthcare. Our infrastructure is not good. We're number one in teen pregnancy. We've got big issues that we could be working together to resolve. And instead, you know, the legislature is focusing on, you know, taking away healthcare from from certain individuals. And really, we are really focused in on abortion here in Arkansas. And so trying to have conversations about those things and how we can work on prevention rather than being reactive has been, people have been pretty receptive to that kind of conversation. I would love to hear more about you being number one in teen pregnancy. How does that get discussed? How should we who don't live in Arkansas understand that stat? It's real interesting. You know, we're in the South. We're in the Bible Belt. Purity culture is what is preached and taught in the churches for the most part. 
Sex education is almost non-existent. If it is happening, it's abstinence-only sex education. And so kids are literally not learning how this happens. And because of the purity culture kind of dynamic that's in the state, kids are not comfortable talking to their parents like, hey, I'm going to be sexually active. What do I need to do to be safe? People are not comfortable having those conversations. And we would rather just say, well, if you're not ready for a baby, you shouldn't be having sex. And it's just an unrealistic take. And we've got to do better. So we're using Colin Woodard's formulation of America as like 11 regional cultures. Okay. As we think about these upcoming elections, we found it to be a really helpful tool. Now, Arkansas sits mostly in the greater Appalachia region, which we do as well in Kentucky. There's a southeastern part of the state that's deep south. But politically, you see a lot of crossover between the deep south and greater Appalachia. You sort of see this voting block. So what I think is really helpful as I think about my state and particularly a state like Arkansas is like, who settled this? Where did the culture come from? Well, what you see in Appalachia is Scott-Irish. And they didn't go in and settle a town like in New England, right? It was like individual families and clans. They'd pick a piece of land. They'd settle right in the middle of it and seclude themselves from everybody else, right? They don't want government in their lives at all. To the impact of their wealth, like it was really about increasing freedom, not wealth. And you see this cycle of like, no government, there is no role for government in my life. It is all about my individual choices, even in religion, right? This evangelical religious outbreak. It's not outlook. It's not about improving society or outreach to our fellow man. It's about individual relationship with God and where you go when you die. And there's not a lot of dissent allowed in the clan or the family. And so you see this cycle of seclusion and poverty, exclusion. No, there's no role for the government here. We don't care if they're doing a bad job because we don't want them here at all. Uh, We don't Mm -hmm. want them in our lives at all. And I'm wondering, you know, like I said, that rings really true for me as a Kentuckian. And I think you can see threads of that even in what you were just saying about teen pregnancy. So Does that ring true for you at your experience in Arkansas? And and as a candidate running for a role in government, how do you speak to that if you don't, if you're, you know, we can see what messaging works well. The government's the enemy, period, Mm -hmm. full stop, vote for me. So how do you, how do you shift that messaging? How do you deal with that narrative? Well, yeah, it's interesting and it's messy. And I would agree that a a large majority here in Arkansas want the government to stay out of their lives and a lot of the legislature focuses on how can we keep the government from being too powerful. Ironically, though, they will put legislation in place that is big government type stuff. Right. To enforce their worldview. Right. So like in our last legislative session, they made it illegal to enforce mask mandates. And so they took away local control. So school boards can't do a mask mandate. And it was just a big hairy mess. And it was so bizarre to me that people couldn't see that. That is big government, though. That is over-involvement because you've taken away the power of the local communities to decide what is best for their people, their their children, their schools. It's that it's that suppression of dissension, right? Like, that's okay. That's okay. Right. That's allowed. But other, anything uh-huh. else, I don't want help, but I will use my power to shut you down. Right. It is bizarre and it is frustrating. So if you can have a calm conversation with someone to kind of be like, let's take a breath and think about how that actually is overreach. You know, we saw, you know, a bunch of legislation. We were real focused on trans youth in Arkansas this last session. And I don't know why, because that's a very small percentage of our population. And it was just like, how can we not see that this is an overreach to be involved in pediatric visits between parents and children and their doctors? Like, that's overreach, but it's all under the guise of we're protecting families mm-hmm. and children. And it can get really confusing for people who aren't digging a little bit deeper into the issues. So how do you deal with that as a candidate? Well, I'd spend a lot of time trying to have conversations. I jokingly will create videos and stuff where I'm like a conservative version of myself and a liberal version of myself, kind of like having a conversation the way we would ideally want it to go. I spent a lot of time, you know, again, on that topic, like, hey, here's what gender affirming healthcare actually looks like. What you've been led to believe is something big and scary and dangerous that it really is not. Nobody's doing surgeries on four and five-year-olds. That's not, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. And so just helping people understand you've been fed, you know, a story that is not exactly accurate. And if you'll step back, take a breath and see what's actually happening, you might not actually have a big problem with this. So everything I do as a candidate revolves around being proactive instead of reactive. Like, let's back up a few steps and see if we can keep from having this big reactive fight in the first place. I wonder, because, you know, it sounds like some of what you're dealing with in Arkansas is that sort of nationalized culture war push. Lots Mm -hmm. of states looking at the same types of legislation around transgender care, for example. 
How do you bring people home and say, like, let's talk about our our roads, our water, our teen pregnancy rate, our schools? I think it's hard to get people to kind of settle in to the places where we can have the most impact right now. And I wonder Mm -hmm. how those conversations go for you. Well, it's really interesting because I don't think it's a shock or surprise to people that, hey, we're not doing great in healthcare. We're not doing great in education. But then on the flip side, we do a lot of like, hey, we've got a budget surplus. Let's cut taxes. Let's do all of this stuff. And it's like, hold up. What if we looked at both of these things together? What if we invest a little money in infrastructure? If we have so much money, then let's take care of some of these problems. Let's boost up our education. Let's support our teachers better. So trying to connect those two things in a conversation that makes sense has been somewhat helpful. When you think about Arkansas's biggest opportunity, the resource you have in abundance or the bright, shiny thing that Arkansas could grab if it would just invest or or focus, uh, what do you see? You know, we've seen a lot lately of trying to be almost a touristy state, which sounds kind of bizarre because most people would not think of Arkansas in that way. But I live in Northwest Arkansas. There's actually a lot of money in Northwest Arkansas and people who have invested in the arts, in a really elaborate trail system, in museums, and, you know, just kind of making it a really neat tourist destination. And so those people happen to have the last name Walton. Yes. (laughs) Oh, you've heard of them? Yeah. I've heard of them, right? No, that, listen, that art museum is on my list. No doubt. It's lovely. It's lovely. And so we do have a lot of assets like that, that we could be talking about and boosting up and, and really boosting our economy even more so here in the state. Every American should go to Hot Springs too. It is a phenomenal place to visit. There's really a lot of places. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting answer to that seclusive, tribal, clannish sort of undercurrent, us versus them, that can really Mm -hmm. infect state politics. And I feel like tourism is often a way to like sort of get around that and say, like, Mm -hmm. we do want people to come here. We do have things to offer, but we have to invest in order to be a place people want to come to. Because I think like, you know, that culture might be in the history, but we've all moved past the, the part of like, we everybody wants tourists, right? Like that, and no matter what your cultural ancestry, like the narrative is, we all want tourists. It's almost like a more positive angle on that nationalization. Like, hey, there's positive mm-hmm. things that we can do in our state to talk about wanting people to come here and having more inclusive language. And like, this is a benefit as opposed to, you know, because I think so often the language just becomes, it's the right thing to do. Well, that is not going to work in a place like Greater Appalachia. That narrative does not work because mm-hmm. of that cultural history. But the idea of like it's an investment so people want to come here so we have more tourism, more jobs, to me, that's a really a positive way to answer that sort of messaging. Right. But of course, you know, on the flip side, we're not going to be able to recruit talent to come work for these big companies like Walmart and Tyson and J.B. Hunt, where we're kind of the hub of a lot of these places. If we have really discriminatory policies written into our state, people don't want to subject their families to that kind of thing if we're not an actually inclusive and accepting state. And so if we want this, we're also going to have to be this. We've got to be inclusive and we've got to be accepting if we want to bring people here for tourism and to move here. So as we wrap up, tell us the moment, the exchange. Girl, I've been watching your TikTok, so I'm sure you're great and <laughs> having great conversations on there. The moment where you thought, I wish everybody could know this about Arkansas. I wish everybody could see this exchange about my state. I wish that we could get a better reputation for it. We're not all extreme. In fact, I'm friends with, uh, you know, I'm running as a Democrat. I have a lot of Republican friends and none of them are like what we see in the national headlines of Arkansas. I feel like Arkansas kind of gets a reputation for being, you know, I've said it over and over, really extreme. And, And most people are not that way. Most people are more accepting. And so I do a lot of just encouraging people, run for office. You're qualified to run for office. We need choices for democracy to actually work. We need people to stop winning in the primary, make people work for it. And it's an uphill battle in some of these different areas of the states where people have not run for, you know, season after season, but it's it's just important. We've got to, we've got to get out there and do it. Well, thank you for making that choice yourself. Hey, thank you. <laughs> Y'all are so encouraging. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We want to thank Kelly for talking to us. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. For outside politics today, Beth, I get a lot of questions about my mother son book club. Have you seen my mother son book club on Instagram? Of course, I love your post about your mother son book club, and I was very excited to see you getting back together in person again. Yes, we took a little bit of a COVID break for lots of obvious reasons. We've been doing this. I had to look it up for this conversation. We've been doing this since 2015. I think. I think that's right. I was looking through my pictures. So seven years, they were six years old when we started, and they're all uh, 12 or 13 now. It's, I think I just read about it somewhere, and I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Like, the woman had been doing it since they were little, and they were, like, going away to college. You know, it's hard, I think, to continue a narrative about love of reading with boys. There's a lot, uh, lots out there about little girl readers. Lots of, like, even that narrative of pop culture, the stories and the movies and stuff that they watch. And so I just, you know, reading is really important to me. And so I wanted to do it. And we have, we've had some people move. And here's the really hard part. We've had some like conflicts among the boys where like they're not actively friends anymore, which is made for interesting mm. dynamics inside the book club because the moms are all still friends. <laughs> but it has been really fun. So for those of you like just asking sort of the specifics, we just started and we just whoever hosts the book club and we usually do it like once a quarter, I would say, gets to pick the book and then we read the book and we come to talk about it. And maybe like one mom will sort of take the lead on the questions that we ask. We try to follow the boys' interests as far as like what they're asking about. But 
it's been really, really fun. I would highly recommend it. Felix definitely wants his own. And so my other two now are like, well, where's our mother-son book club? And so I'm going to have, I'm, there There could be a point where I'm in three mother-son book clubs. So pray for me. What has been the book that sparked the most interesting conversations so far? There was a really, well, first of all, I need to give a mad shout out to Beth Shom, who is longtime listener and incredible librarian. And so often I'm like, please send me all the books. And her book's recommendations are amazing. One of my favorites she recommended was You Don't Know Everything, Jilly P by Alex Gino. It just covered a lot. It was a really beautiful book about identity and disability and complicated family dynamics surrounding those things. I really liked it. I thought we had a really good conversation. The boys really like books that are like a lot of identity stuff. I mean, it makes sense, right? They're getting older. They're figuring out their identities. They they go to pretty diverse school. And so we try to read a lot of books about diversity and inclusion. And so our next book is The Hate You Give, which I'm really excited about. And so I thought that was a really... That was a really good conversation we had. It's hard when we do more like plot driven books because it doesn't feel like there's as much to talk about. Um, So we do try to stick to those sort of very experience driven novels. So if someone were getting started today, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you do differently in how you sort of set it up? Yeah, I wonder if it would be easier if we had we've and we're kind of moving this way, like a book one of the boys has read before. Because sometimes we'll get them and they're like, none of them like it. And that's really hard when none of them like the book. (laughs) And so I think I would really let them, like the boys pick the books instead of all of us starting from scratch a book we've never read. It also makes it easier. Like you get a time off where you've already, I love it when I have a book club and I've already read the book selected by the book club. So I'm sure some consider that cheating, but it really does make life easier. feels like you're ahead of the game, you know? I think that would be good. And I think sometimes it got easy for, there was a, a point in our book club where it got really easy to just let the boys read the book. And then we would barely talk about it. And then that we would just split off and the boys would go play and the moms would chat. And we probably needed that at the time. We just need some decompression. But we've really tried to get better about like, no, we all read the book and we all talk about it together because those were really the most productive conversations. Do you find that the conversation from the book club like comes up again in your house? That's that's what I am noticing a lot lately. If I have something unusual with Jane, with Jane or Ellen, it tends to have so many ripple effects. You know, if we have like one mm. conversation about something, it'll come up again two weeks later in a different context. So I'm wondering if you see a lot of that with the book club. Yeah, it's it's really funny. Like last time we'd had our first meeting in a long time and everybody left and Griffin was like, that was really fun. I forgot how nice it is just to talk about things. <laughs> It was so sweet. I was like, don't we talk about things? He's like, yeah, it's just different when my friends are here and we can really like share what's going off on in middle school. You know, they just really need a place to share and connect. But yeah, I mean, I think there's some books that we'll still talk about like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of, you know, whatever novel that we read um, that it'll come up. Because once you have some language around it and you have just that muscle memory of like we talked about that and it was fine, I think it really helps, especially as they get older. A thing I love about this is you're introducing other adults who are people who can talk with them about important things. I'm just constantly mm-hmm. thinking about how I think do I so build cute. this community of other adults around my kids for the times when they just don't want to come to me with something, but they they know that they have other people to go to. I will also say I'm just glad these boys are like in a book club. It is shocking and appalling to me how often I will encounter specifically women who are like, I've never been in a book club. I'm like, wait, what? What do you mean you've never been in a book club? I feel like I've been in a book club since the age of 16, like perpetually. And I am a joiner by nature. I get that. But like, I just thought that was like legally required. I don't know. To turn 35 is like to have been in a book club. I wish that were true. I think it's really hard to start things. Mm -hmm. I have started a cup that have fizzled out that didn't take. That's for sure. Yeah, it's hard to start. It's hard to maintain. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. I think that there can be like a guilt component if you don't get the reading Mm, done that people don't want to welcome into their lives. I just think finding friends as an adult, we've talked about this before, is harder than it should be, especially if you've moved to a new community recently. So I don't want to act like that's an easy lift because I don't I think it's not as easy a lift as it ought to be. No, that's really true. I just mean, like, have you, how have you not been, like, dragged into one by this point in life? I think a good book club is very hard. The best book club I have ever been in is when I was newly married, and I went to a Barnes & Noble book club in North Carolina, where we lived at the time. And it was very diverse ages, men, women, 
different ethnicities, different life experiences, and we were not friends outside the book club. And it was the best book club. Because sometimes I think book clubs that become, like, I have a quote-unquote book club that's just a group of friends. We don't ever read books anymore. And it's fine. Like, I'm happy to, like, I love that we get together and it's really important to me. But I do miss book clubs that are actually to discuss the book. Because I think sometimes, like, when you, when everybody's, like, you're a group of friends already or you want to be a group of friends, it's hard to maintain the book club. Because the friendship takes priority. Well, you just said, I think, the key verb, which is, how have you not been dragged into it? A lot of people mm-hmm. aren't getting dragged anywhere. There are not enough draggers out That's there. That's true. I have learned from you I'm a to start assuming that people want to do things with me. That's been a very mm-hmm. big mind shift because mm-hmm. I started assuming that no one wanted to do anything with me ever, that I was imposing on people to say, like, do you want to go have lunch or dinner, right? And when you get out of that mind shift and you become That's a dragger, so it feels good and life is a lot more fun. And also you don't care if people say no because you know there's going to yeah. be something oh, else no, around I definitely the corner. It's going to be fine. Yeah. But there aren't enough people dragging. Mm-hmm. That's hard to convey as a dragger is like people think I'm going to be mad at them. I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't. I just ask somebody else. Like, <laughs> no, yeah. it's so true. It's just, you know, I'm a joiner. I like to be with people. I think that is key to human happiness. And, you know, I just ask for things. I'm I am an asker. I don't know if it's an only child. I don't know if my mother taught me how to do this, although she's often appalled by what I will ask for. But I just ask for what I need. People say no, they say no. Yeah. And when you get into that mindset, it just everything lightens. But mm-hmm. it was hard for me to get there. So I'm I'm doing a better job at dragging. I haven't I haven't done a book club yet in, in my like modern iteration. I need to try to drag people into a book club. Well I, you could I also do right a podcast or a long read club. I was actually in the pages of Real Simple yeah. with my book club that turned into a long read, a long article club. I would love a long read club. That sounds mm-hmm. right. It's fun. Because I read a lot of those. Yeah. It's fun. All right. Well, this was this became an overarching book club conversation, but I like it. Thank you for joining us here for another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we just follow the conversational road wherever it may lead. We will see you again on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our Community Engagement Manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. The Hutchins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller.